0: Since we launched This American President in 2017, we've spent countless hours of effort to bring you compelling stories and lessons from history. We want to keep giving you the best content possible, and we need your help to do it. We've just revamped our Patreon account for our supporters. You can find it at patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you feel like you've benefited from listening to our episodes, please consider signing up. We've created four tiers of Patreon support that you can choose from. Citizen, Representative, Senator, and Governor. We hope you'll consider becoming a patron of our podcast. Our patrons empower us to access the best scholarly resources, improve our production quality, and expand our reach across the nation. Again, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident and signing up. This episode is brought to you by Graham Jackson. Graham, thank you for your support. In our previous episode, we covered John F. Kennedy's rise to the White House, his new vision for America's Cold War policies, and his early struggles in Cuba with the Bay of Pigs, in Vienna with Khrushchev, and in Egypt and the Congo. As serious as these crises were, none of them would compare with what he would face for the rest of his presidency. That story, and how Kennedy led America during this time of upheaval, is the subject of this episode of This American President. the failure of the Bay of Pigs, JFK and his brother Bobby were obsessed with Castro. Kennedy had criticized Eisenhower for losing Cuba, and yet it was in Cuba where he had suffered the biggest humiliation of his presidency. In the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy approved the top-secret Operation Mongoose, which had the stated goal of overthrowing Castro's regime. This is where I have to pause. Again, there are many people who love President Kennedy in a very idealistic sense because his words inspired them. That's all good and well, but let's not lose sight of his actual actions and intentions. He had attempted to covertly overthrow a sovereign nation during the Bay of Pigs invasion and, throughout his presidency, continued in that attempt. He did this because Cuba was a communist nation. In doing so, Kennedy joined the ranks of men like Eisenhower, Nixon, and Reagan, who also used covert means to wage war against communism. After the Bay of Pigs, Castro feared that the United States would invade Cuba directly. He relied more and more on the Soviets, who sent him military and economic aid. The American people wanted action on Cuba. They feared the prospect of a growing Soviet presence on the island. A Gallup poll in September 1962 showed that 71% of respondents wanted Kennedy to do something about Castro. Republicans gleefully criticized Kennedy for allowing the Cuban regime to persist, especially after all of the criticism he had lobbed at the Eisenhower administration. So what you have, on the eve of what became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, is a president under considerable pressure to act tough on the Soviets, and more specifically, a president who was working his way back from a position of weakness because of the Bay of Pigs disaster. Khrushchev likely continued to see Kennedy as weak, not just after the Bay of Pigs, but also because of his lackluster performance at the Vienna Conference. He didn't hesitate to strengthen Cuba's defenses. An American U-2 flight in August of 1962 showed that Castro had Soviet defensive surface-to-air missiles. Just days later, JFK issued a statement warning the Soviets of the, quote, "'gravest consequences' if they provided Cuba with offensive weapons. By September of 1962, tensions were flaring enough that JFK asked Congress to allow him to call up 150,000 reservists. He also got a congressional resolution that authorized him to use force to protect the Western Hemisphere against Cuban aggression." the CIA stepped up its activities related to Cuba. So here you have a classic crisis situation developing, where one side's actions provoke the other side, which in turn provokes a response. Khrushchev's moves in Cuba provoked Kennedy to take visible defensive measures, which Khrushchev and Castro, in turn, took as preparations for an invasion. Soon the Soviets were shipping and building medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. In his eyes, Khrushchev was defending Cuba from an impending American invasion. But Khrushchev also had other reasons for arming Cuba. When JFK ran for the presidency, he accused Eisenhower of allowing a missile gap to develop, and by that he meant that the Soviets were getting ahead of the United States in ballistic missile capability. In his words,
2: But now they are no longer certain that America's lead will continue in the future. When they see the missile gap widen, and once our atomic monopoly begins to cease.
0: That claim, that there was a gap in missile capability between the Soviets and the United States, one that was in the Soviets' favor, ended up being the opposite of the truth. Under Eisenhower, the United States was far ahead of the Soviets in missiles. Eisenhower couldn't publicly refute this, because he feared it would reveal that he was using covert spy planes to obtain that bit of intelligence. Historian James Giglio notes that by 1962, the United States had 172 Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, or ICBMs, and 155 Polaris Submarine Launched Ballistic Missiles, or SLBMs. By contrast, the Soviets had at most 15 ICBMs and had no SLBMs. Also, the United States had a 17 to 1 advantage in atomic warheads. Kennedy had gotten faulty estimates from Air Force reports, which inflated the Soviet threat. Kennedy had benefited publicly during the campaign from exploiting this perceived gap, but when he learned as president that his numbers had been wrong, he was embarrassed. The administration began to walk back on its missile gap claim. Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, publicly announced that the United States was way ahead. Some historians speculate that this revelation humiliated Khrushchev because he wanted to keep the fiction of Soviet superiority alive. He had been able to maintain this false perception when the Soviets achieved major technological milestones, like launching the first satellite, Sputnik, in 1957, and then putting the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, in 1961. But the numbers told the truth. The United States had the Soviets beat when it came to nuclear capability. To emphasize the Soviets' vulnerability, the U.S. had placed over 100 medium-range nuclear-tipped Jupiter missiles in Turkey back in June of 1961, missiles that could strike Moscow. The Kennedy administration did this for several reasons, to counter the Soviets' conventional military superiority in Europe, and to assure European allies that America would come to their defense. It was also done to discourage those allies from building their own nuclear weapons. Originally, France was considered for the site hosting the Jupiter missiles, but they refused, so they went to Turkey instead. At any rate, sending missiles to Cuba was Khrushchev's chance to somewhat even the score. If he couldn't match the Americans in total capability, he could compensate for that by placing dozens of nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba making the American East Coast vulnerable. He hoped to place 48 medium-range ballistic missiles, 32 intermediate-range ballistic missiles, and another 48 nuclear-capable bombers in Cuba. Historians debate other reasons for why Khrushchev sent the missiles into Cuba. Some say it was to force the Americans, through nuclear blackmail, to give up West Berlin. Others say it was a direct response to the deployment of the Jupiter missiles in Turkey. It was a major gamble by Khrushchev, because he believed he could get the missiles installed and operational before they were detected. It was rather audacious of him to believe that he could do that, especially since he knew that the United States had U-2 spy planes. But perhaps, because of the Bay of Pigs and his encounter with Kennedy in Vienna, Khrushchev was convinced that the American president was so weak and indecisive that he wouldn't respond. On October 16, 1962, JFK's National Security Advisor, McGeorge Bundy, informed him that photos from a U-2 flight two days earlier showed that the Soviets had installed nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba. Kennedy immediately ordered further U-2 flights over Cuba. He recognized that this was a serious situation that could escalate into a full-blown crisis. He believed that there was no way he could allow the Soviet missiles in Cuba his own political standing would be diminished. It was one thing to lose Cuba to communism. It was another thing to permit the Soviets to shift the status quo, to so visibly threaten the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. Kennedy knew that the US maintained superiority in nuclear capability, but he worried about perception. The missiles in Cuba could embolden both the Soviets and Castro. It might cause America's allies especially those in NATO and in Latin America, to fear that the United States was slowly ceding ground to the Soviets. And then there was the simple fact that Khrushchev had done this all in secret, despite warnings against such actions from the Kennedy administration. Also, Khrushchev had said he would only put defensive weapons, like anti-aircraft missiles, in Cuba, not nuclear-tipped missiles, Kennedy knew that not doing anything risked allowing the Soviets to get away with what he considered to be provocative and defiant actions. Critics would say that America had been caught sending U-2 spy planes over Soviet airspace during Eisenhower's administration, and that it also had missiles in Turkey that could hit Moscow. But perception was key here. There was a sense that allowing the other side any ground, fair or unfair, could not be permitted during the Cold War, especially for a president who hadn't looked all that impressive against the Soviets. And don't forget, there was a midterm election less than a month away.
3: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long I hope to see you soon.
0: Kennedy decided to create an ad hoc committee of experts and officials specifically for the purpose of managing this crisis. The group was given the grandiose title, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or XCOM for short. It included Vice President Lyndon Johnson, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, Secretary of Defense Bob McNamara, Secretary of the Treasury C. Douglas Dillon, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, CIA Director John McCone, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Max Taylor, National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, and Kennedy's speechwriter Theodore Sorensen, among others. This group would end up meeting in secret several times throughout the crisis— Although Bobby Kennedy was Attorney General, which wasn't an obviously foreign policy related position, by virtue of being the President's brother, he had a major leadership role in the XCOM. He encouraged the President to keep away from some of the meetings so as to elicit greater candor or honesty out of the members. Kennedy, as well as the broader XCOM, also reached out to other advisors from the outside, like Truman Secretary of State Dean Acheson, defense expert Paul Nitza. And UN Ambassador Adley Stevenson. Kennedy had learned his lesson from the Bay of Pigs. He would get a wider array of advice and candid advice, both collectively and through private meetings. On the same day he found out about the missiles, Kennedy gathered the XCOM together for a meeting on what to do. During the meeting, there was a sense that an airstrike on the missiles was the favorite option. Rusk, Dillon, McBundy, and General Taylor voiced support for an airstrike. Kennedy seemed to favor this option at first. Old hands like Atchison and NHTSA supported decisive military action. In fact, NHTSA actually supported both an airstrike and a follow-on invasion. Others thought that there could be another alternative. They feared that an attack could provoke an exchange that could escalate quickly. An airstrike would likely kill Soviet personnel on the island. If that happened, they argued, who was to say that Khrushchev wouldn't launch the surviving missiles? Or what if he used the attack as a justification to take Berlin, or take out the Jupiter missiles in Turkey? And they noted that a successful strike on Cuba could require about 500 planes. This would be a complex and massive operation, and it wasn't clear that the strike would be successful. There was also debate about the scope of the attack whether it should be a massive attack or a surgical strike. Bobby Kennedy hated the idea of an airstrike. According to Ted Sorensen, during the meetings, he passed a note to his brother that read, I now know how Tojo felt when he was planning Pearl Harbor. This was a reference to Hideki Tojo, the Japanese official who ordered the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The implication was that if America was the first to use force, it would lose the moral high ground It would be a sneak attack that would be viewed as unjustified. There is some question as to whether Sorensen made up this story after the fact. And for the Hawks, the very presence of Soviet missiles 90 miles off American shores was an existential threat and required a response. This is where McNamara brought up the possibility of a blockade. It would be a way to respond, but in a far less provocative fashion. But this posed other issues. Many people considered a blockade an act of war. Would that provoke a general war between the two superpowers? And a blockade wouldn't remove the missiles already there. It seemed that this option contained the risk of war without the benefit of an attack that would disable the missiles in Cuba. The XCOM would sometimes meet multiple times a day during the crisis. Kennedy kept up with his appointments, meeting with this world leader or that politician, so as not to tip off the situation to the media. And with the midterm elections just a few weeks away, Kennedy had a number of campaign stops scheduled. At this point, Kennedy was still strongly considering an airstrike, affirming to his advisors, quote, we're going to take out these missiles. Although Bobby had voiced concerns about the airstrike, it wasn't rooted in pacifist sentiments. He seemed to care mainly about the United States not shooting first so it could maintain the moral high ground. He even alluded to using some sort of pretext to engage in hostilities, as long as the U.S. didn't appear to be the aggressor. He said, quote, One other thing is whether we should think of whether there is some other way we can get involved in this, through Guantanamo Bay or something, or whether there's some ship that, you know, sink the main again or something. The main was a reference to the American ship that was sunk in 1898, that led to the Spanish-American War, which you can learn more about in our previous episodes on the subject. Still, the following day, October 17th, Bobby took a stronger line against the airstrike, especially because it might result in the deaths of civilians. He reportedly told members of the XCOM, quote, my brother is not going to be the Tojo of the 1960s. You have to remember, Bobby was 36 at the time. As I said earlier, He was known for being ruthless. Some said he was arrogant. That's what Dean Acheson thought. Acheson was almost in his 70s and was one of the architects of America's containment policy against the Soviets under President Truman. He was apparently outraged by this comparison, by the idea that their proposed airstrike was the moral equivalent of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. He felt that there was no comparing the United States defending itself from Soviet aggression in 1962 to Japan's expansionist actions during World War II. Men like Acheson had faced the communists before, whether it was during the Berlin Air Crisis in 1948 or the Korean War. In those instances, they took action, sometimes military actions, to counter the communists, like in Korea. They felt that the Soviets would only respect strength. They also remembered the lessons of appeasement when Europe had failed to act when the Nazis had made aggressive moves throughout the 1930s, and felt that the time to act was now before the Soviets got stronger and all of their missiles became operational. Despite their disagreements, the men in the XCOM were puzzled as to why Khrushchev would do something so provocative. They figured that Khrushchev had to have known that the US wouldn't permit these missiles to remain in Cuba. Years later, Khrushchev's son revealed that his father was trying to show the Soviet Union's allies that Moscow would not abandon them in the face of American aggression. He also suggested that Khrushchev had miscalculated, not understanding how America would react. Europeans and Russians had lived for years with enemies nearby, whether it was the Turks in the 15th century, Napoleon in the 19th century, or Hitler in the 20th. America was different. They were used to having two oceans surrounding them, providing thousands of miles of buffer from any threat. If there was another thing the EXCOMM members agreed upon, it was that they were not willing to go the diplomatic route. They did not intend to try to negotiate out of the situation. They felt that this course would reward the Soviets for their behavior and signal that the U.S. was willing to bargain when threatened with nuclear blackmail. Although Atchison, Taylor, and Nitza continued to support an attack, more members of the XCOM warmed up to the idea of a blockade. More importantly, Kennedy started to favor it. He had recently read historian Barbara Tuckman's classic work on World War I, The Guns of August. One of the lessons Kennedy derived from it was how the miscalculations of statesmen could lead to events that spiral out of control. In 1914, missteps had led to war and the ultimate destruction of the European continent. In 1962, it could lead to the destruction of the world.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.
0: On October 18th, Kennedy had a scheduled appointment with the Soviet foreign minister, Andrei Gromyko. The meeting had been scheduled before the U.S. knew about the missiles in Cuba. Three weeks earlier, Gromyko had given a speech at the U.N. where he said that the Soviets would not send offensive missiles to Cuba. When the meeting took place, Kennedy read to Gromyko his previous warning to the Soviets not to place offensive weapons in Cuba. Gromyko affirmed that position and said that the Soviets desired, quote, peaceful coexistence with the United States. JFK knew that Gromyko was lying and had photographic evidence to prove it, but whatever temptation he had to show the pictures, he decided not to. On October 19th, Kennedy campaigned throughout the Midwest while his advisors back in Washington debated the three options, major airstrike, surgical strike, or blockade. Kennedy got back to the White House on October 20th. By then, Dean Atchison saw where the wind was blowing. He knew that the blockade was emerging as a favored option, so he stopped attending the XCOM meetings. During a meeting, Kennedy asked for his vice president's views. Johnson replied that he supported the blockade. Kennedy had the XCOM take a vote. The blockade won with 11 votes, and the airstrike option got 6 votes. During these meetings, Adlai Stevenson, the U.N. ambassador, spoke up. He had been the Democratic nominee for president in 1952 and 1956, both times losing in landslides to President Eisenhower. Stevenson had hoped Kennedy would appoint him Secretary of State, but was disappointed when he offered him the U.N. ambassadorship instead. Kennedy didn't care for Stevenson much, once calling him, quote, a bitter old man with a little thing. And just to clarify, that was a swipe at Stevenson's masculinity. Most of his advisors didn't think much of Stevenson either, regarding him as a symbol of political failure. Stevenson raised the prospect of a diplomatic solution with the Soviets, the possibility of the United States promising not to invade Cuba and removing the Jupiter missiles in Turkey in exchange for the Soviets removing their missiles in Cuba. The response from the XCOM was brutal. And Stevenson's suggestion was ruled out of hand. Historian James Giglio writes that JFK may have asked Stevenson to bring up the diplomatic option so that any subsequent action, even a blockade, would be seen as the more reasonable solution. Kennedy was decided. He could go forward with the blockade. He also felt that he could always escalate and employ airstrikes if the blockade failed. This was in line with Kennedy's Cold War philosophy of flexible response. But again, there was concern that a blockade could provoke some sort of response from the Soviets. The XCOM knew that blockades were seen as acts of war. It would require the U.S. military to essentially encircle Cuba and prevent Soviet ships from passing through. No one knew how the Soviets might react. They could fire at American ships in response. To soften what they were about to do, the XCOM played with the semantics of the situation To avoid the baggage of the term blockade, they would call it a quarantine instead. Kennedy believed that he had to go public with the missiles at some point, and also explain the quarantine. It would allow him to publicly state the American position, and put the ball in the Soviets' court. A primetime nationwide address was scheduled for October 22nd. On that date, Kennedy prepared for his speech while the Joint Chiefs were completing the planning for the quarantine, Kennedy then put the military on war alert. This put 100,000 in the Army Strategic Reserve on readiness and sent Marine enforcements to Guantanamo Bay. His staff briefed NATO allies on what moves would be taken. He also met with his official cabinet and then with congressional leadership to inform them about the crisis. The latter meeting was tense, since senators were both lukewarm to the quarantine and preferred an invasion. The conversation got heated, and Kennedy left the meeting in anger. Around this time, Kennedy looked for wisdom wherever he could find it, and it's no surprise he reached out to his predecessors, especially President Eisenhower, the military hero of World War II. In one of our episodes on Eisenhower, we covered a fascinating phone conversation he and Kennedy had in the middle of the crisis. We played that phone call in that episode, and we're going to play it again here since it's also part of Kennedy's story. JFK was getting all sorts of advice that he should be ready to use military force to get rid of the missiles in Cuba. But Kennedy feared that the Soviets would respond by retaliating somewhere like in Berlin, and the whole situation could trigger a nuclear war. Cold War veterans like Dean Acheson were convinced the Soviets would not respond and would back down. But how could they be so sure? Perhaps Eisenhower might be able to impart some wisdom.
2: As I say, uh, we will, uh, I don't know, we may get into the invasion business before many days are out. But course, uh, know, the military, that's a clean-cut thing to do now. That's right. Because that's you, right. you've made up your mind, you've got to get rid of this. Thing. Right, right. The only real way to get rid of it, of course, is the other thing. Right. It's having to be concerned with world opinion. And, uh, and Berlin. Why he's got to well, Berlin is the, uh, I suppose, uh, that it may be the what they're going to try well, to trade might, off.
4: But I, I, I personally, I just don't quite go along, you know, with that uh, thinking. But my idea is that the damn Soviets will do whatever they want, what they uh, think is good for them. Yeah. And I don't believe they relate one situation with another. Uh-huh. That's uh-huh. what they find out they can do here and there and the other place. Yeah. Yeah. And we're... we're already standing at uh, the unit with NATO that if they go into Berlin, that's all of it. Right. That means uh, they've got to, to look out that they don't get a, a terrific uh, blow themselves. Right, right. I, I don't, it might be, I could be all wrong with my own conviction. If, if you will not find a great deal of relationship
0: between Kennedy then went to the heart of the matter, asking Eisenhower if the Soviets might retaliate and risk nuclear war if Kennedy attacked Cuba.
2: General, what about if the Soviet Union, uh, Khrushchev, announces uh, tomorrow, which I think he will, that if we attack Cuba that uh, it's going to be nuclear war? Uh, And uh, what's your judgment as to uh, the chances they'll fire these things off if we invade Cuba?
4: Oh, uh,
2: I don't believe that they will. In other words, you would take that risk if the situation seems out. As a matter of fact, uh, what can you do? Yeah. Uh, you, If this thing is such a uh, serious thing
4: uh, here on our flank, that uh, we're going to be uneasy, and we know what this thing's happening now, all right, you've got to use something. Right. Something may uh, make these people shoot them off. I just don't believe this well. Yeah, all right. <laughs> In any event, of course, I'll say this. I'd want to keep my own people very alert.
2: Yeah. Oh hang on tight. Yes, thanks a lot, General. All
0: right, All right, Eisenhower seemed to be siding with the Hawks. He wasn't as worried about Soviet retaliation. I've always been amused by Kennedy's reaction. He just chuckles. It's the laugh of someone exasperated. It seemed few shared his concern that nuclear war might break out. Some historians wonder if Eisenhower enjoyed telling Kennedy that he had to be tough on the communists. Perhaps it was payback for Kennedy saying Eisenhower had allowed the Soviets to get ahead in the 1950s. At the same time, as we covered in our previous episode, one could say Eisenhower wasn't saying anything he himself wasn't willing to do. He was willing to go to the brink of nuclear war against the communists, as he did multiple times during his presidency. At any rate, at 7pm that evening, President Kennedy went before the TV cameras to deliver one of the most sobering speeches in all of history. He was about to announce to the American public the presence of offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba, and that those missiles represented an existential threat.
2: Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, Unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.
0: JFK then laid out the rationale for why the missiles posed such a threat.
2: Neither the United States of America or the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception and offensive threats on the part of any nation, large or small. We no longer live in a world where only the actual firing of weapons represents a sufficient challenge to a nation's security to constitute maximum peril. Nuclear weapons are so destructive and ballistic missiles are so swift that any substantially increased possibility of their use or any sudden change in their deployment may well be regarded as a definite threat to peace. For many years, both the Soviet Union and the United States, recognizing this fact, have deployed strategic nuclear weapons with great care, never upsetting the precarious status quo which ensured that these weapons would not be used in the absence of some vital challenge. Our own strategic missiles have never been transferred to the territory of any other nation under a cloak of secrecy and deception. And our history, unlike that of the Soviets since the end of World War II, demonstrates that we have no desire to dominate or conquer any other nation or impose our system upon its people. Nevertheless, American citizens have become adjusted to living daily on the bullseye of Soviet missiles, located inside the USSR, or in submarines. In that sense, missiles in Cuba add to an already clear and present danger. Although it should be noted, the nations of Latin America have never previously been subjected to a potential nuclear threat. But this secret, swift, extraordinary buildup of communist missiles In an area well known to have a special and historical relationship to the United States and the nations of the Western Hemisphere, in violation of Soviet assurances and in defiance of American and hemispheric policy, this sudden, clandestine decision to station strategic weapons for the first time outside of Soviet soil is a deliberately provocative and unjustified change in the status quo, which cannot be accepted by this country if our courage and our commitments are ever to be trusted again by either friend or foe. The 1930s taught us a clear lesson. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. This nation is opposed to war. We are also true to our word. Our unswerving objective, therefore, must be to prevent the use of these missiles against this or any other country and to secure their withdrawal or elimination from the Western Hemisphere.
0: JFK then announced the actions he would take.
2: Acting therefore in the defense of our own security and of the entire Western Hemisphere, and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution, as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive build-up, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will they found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons be turned back.
0: And Kennedy then drew a line in the sand.
2: Third, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile, launch from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union.
0: With that said, JFK intentionally tied his own hands, publicly putting his credibility on the line. He was declaring that the United States would react automatically to any Soviet attack with a retaliatory attack of its own. In doing so, Kennedy hoped to establish a credible deterrent against a Soviet nuclear attack. Kennedy concluded,
2: Seventh and finally, I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race, and to transform the history of man. He has an opportunity now to move the world back from the abyss of destruction by returning to his government's own words that it had no need to station missiles outside its own territory, and withdrawing these weapons from Cuba by refraining from any action which will widen or deepen the present crisis, and then by participating in a search for peaceful and permanent solutions. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere, and we hope around the world. God willing, that goal will be achieved. Thank you, and good night.
0: The following day, October 23rd, Khrushchev responded to Kennedy's speech in a letter where he accused the United States of being the aggressor. Quote I must say frankly that measures indicated in your statement constitute a serious threat to peace and to the security of nations the United States has openly taken the path of grossly violating the United Nations Charter, the path of violating international norms of freedom of navigation on the high seas, the path of aggressive actions against both Cuba and the Soviet Union. We affirm that the armaments which are in Cuba, regardless of the classification to which they may belong, are intended solely for defensive purposes. In order to secure the Republic of Cuba, against the attack of an aggressor. I hope that the United States government will display wisdom and renounce the actions pursued by you, which may lead to catastrophic consequences for world peace. But the American people were behind Kennedy. Eighty-four percent of Americans backed the blockade, but one-fifth of Americans feared that World War III was becoming inevitable. That evening, Kennedy gave the final approval for the quarantine, By the following day, October 24th, 16 destroyers, three cruisers, one aircraft carrier, and 150 additional ships were patrolling the quarantine line. Also that day, Strategic Air Command, the command in charge of America's nuclear arsenal, was placed on full war footing for the first time ever. 550 B 52s were in the air, carrying nuclear weapons. It was at this point that one spark, whether intentional or not, could have ignited the whole situation. At stake was the fate of the whole world. One miscalculation, or some miscommunication, or some rogue officer disobeying orders could potentially lead to war between the superpowers. It just so happened that the head of Strategic Air Command, General Thomas Power, went rogue. Kennedy had ordered the command to DEFCON 2, which is the second highest military alert level just short of imminent nuclear war. General Power obeyed this command, but he broadcasted the order in a way that the Soviets could see it. This wasn't authorized by Kennedy, and it alarmed the Soviets, giving them the impression that the Americans were preparing for nuclear war. The Soviets did not respond impulsively to Power's broadcast, but it was a reminder that, for the White House, giving out orders down the chain of command had a lot of risks. All eyes were focused on the quarantine line. Would the Soviets violate it? they had 25 ships heading towards Cuba. Kennedy placed the line at about 500 miles from Cuban shores. He hoped that this would give Khrushchev time to make the choice to back down. And the crisis was now in its second week, and Kennedy was understandably exhausted. Bobby described him as looking gray, and his eyes pained. At 10.25 a.m., Kennedy learned that the Soviet ships had ceased advancing towards the quarantine line. Some were turning back. It seemed that Khrushchev was willing to back down and honor the quarantine. There was a sigh of relief. Secretary of State Rusk made the famous comment, quote, We're eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other fellow just blinked. Some scholars look back at this comment and say that it mischaracterized the situation. Cold War historian Michael Dobbs, wrote that this gave the false impression that the Soviets were right at the quarantine line and turned back at the last minute. This wasn't true. The two closest ships were about 500 nautical miles away from the line and had turned back. The lead ship was 750 miles away, and Khrushchev had ordered that Soviet missile-carrying freighters turn back the previous day. Still, it didn't change the fact that the Soviets appeared to be reversing themselves perhaps there was a way out of the crisis. While Soviet ships began to turn back, there was still the little detail of the Soviet missiles that were still remaining on Cuba. There was a sense among the American people that the crisis wouldn't be resolved until those missiles were removed. The following day, October 25th, Kennedy wrote a letter to Khrushchev demanding, in effect, that he remove the missiles from Cuba. And although the Soviet ships that were carrying missiles had turned back, other ships, like tankers, were still heading towards Cuba. Kennedy even allowed one ship, the Bucharest, through the quarantine line because it was a tanker that didn't carry any missiles. This incensed the hawks in Kennedy's XCOM. They felt that this signaled American weakness. At the least, they felt that the American Navy should board the ship. Kennedy explained, speaking of Khrushchev, quote, I don't want to put him into a corner from which he cannot escape. In other words, he wanted to give the Soviet leader some wiggle room to remove himself from the crisis, perhaps a graceful way to bow out. Kennedy was gambling that Khrushchev wanted to end the crisis and needed some political cover. To the hawks, this would only encourage further aggression. Paul Nitza, veteran of the Truman administration, called Kennedy a, quote, waste." He made the point during a meeting with the XCOM that the quarantine was doing nothing to remove the missiles that already were in Cuba. You have to imagine the level of stress these men were experiencing. They had gone through several stressful days with around-the-clock meetings full of intense heated discussions with the highest stakes possible. Sleep was scarce. Then there were the fears of leaks or some rogue bureaucrat or military official disobeying or misinterpreting orders possibly resulting in the start of World War III. Advisors were going days without seeing their families. People were making plans for a possible nuclear war. And the clock was ticking. The longer the administration waited to take action, military action, the more missiles would become operational.
4: Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events.
1: Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast.
0: You have to imagine that the Soviets were feeling the heat as well. They were looking for a way out. On October 26th, a Soviet intelligence official in the embassy in Washington, D.C., Alexander Fomen, reached out mysteriously to an ABC News correspondent, John Scali, and requested that they meet at a restaurant called The Occidental, just a few blocks from the White House. Scali later recalled, quote, he wanted to have lunch with me. I'd already had lunch when he called me, but his voice was so urgent and insistent that I decided to go immediately. Scully later recounted the exchange he had with Fomin during lunch. After the waiter had taken our order, he came right to the point and said, War seems about to break out. Something must be done to save the situation. And I said, Well, you should have thought of that before you introduced the missiles. He then said, There might be a way out. What do you think of a proposition whereby we would promise to remove our missiles under United Nations inspection? where Mr. Khrushchev would promise never to introduce such offensive missiles into Cuba again. Would the President of the United States be willing to promise publicly not to invade Cuba? I said I didn't know, but I would be willing to try and find out. The rest of the meal was eaten in silence. And incidentally, he got my crab cakes and I wound up with his pork chop, but he didn't notice it. Per Foman's request, Scully sent the message to Secretary of State Rusk, who then notified the White House. That same day, Khrushchev sent a letter to Kennedy. The letter read like the words of a desperate man. It was rambling and emotional. Gone was the blustering figure Kennedy encountered in Vienna. Khrushchev maintained that the missiles in Cuba were defensive, not offensive, and that he was not looking for war, saying, I have participated in two wars, and I know that war ends when it is rolled through cities and villages everywhere, sowing death and destruction. Khrushchev then proposed a quid pro quo that mirrored Foman's proposal, quote, If assurances were given by the President and the government of the United States that the USA itself would not participate in an attack on Cuba and would restrain others from actions of this sort, if you would recall your fleet, this would immediately change everything. We for our part will declare that our ships bound for Cuba will not carry any kind of armaments. You would declare that the United States will not invade Cuba with its forces and will not support any sort of forces which might intend to carry out an invasion of Cuba. Then the necessity for the presence of our military specialists in Cuba would disappear. Khrushchev was clearly looking for a way out. He ended his letter with a metaphor comparing the back and forth of the crisis to the tying of a rope into a knot. Quote, Mr. President, we and you ought not now to pull on the ends of the rope in which you have tied the knot of war, because the more the two of us pull, the tighter that knot will be tied. And a moment may come when that knot will be tied so tight that even he who tied it will not have the strength to untie it, And then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you, because you yourself understand perfectly of what terrible forces our countries dispose. Consequently, if there is no intention to tighten that knot and thereby to doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot We are ready for this." Kennedy and his team felt optimistic. Although many issues remained to be worked out, there seemed to be progress. The Soviets were signaling a desire to get out of the crisis. The following day, October 27th, those hopes appeared to be shattered. On that day, a second letter from Khrushchev arrived. Strangely enough, it had a completely different tone from the previous day's letter. This one was far more polished, as if it went through revision and review by others. This time, Khrushchev brought up American missiles and Turkey and called out what he felt was a double standard, quote, "'How are we, the Soviet Union, our government, "'to assess your actions, which are expressed in the fact "'that you have surrounded the Soviet Union "'with military bases, surrounded our allies "'with military bases, placed military bases "'literally around our country, and station your missile armaments there. Your missiles are located in Britain, are located in Italy, and are aimed against us. Your missiles are located in Turkey. You are disturbed over Cuba. You say that this disturbs you because it is 90 miles by sea from the coast of the United States of America. But Turkey adjoins us. Our sentries patrol back and forth and see each other. Do you consider then that you have the right to demand security for your own country and the removal of the weapons you call offensive, but do not accord the same right to us? You have placed destructive missile weapons, which you call offensive in Turkey, literally next to us. How then can recognition of our equal military capacities be reconciled with such unequal relations between our great states? This is irreconcilable. I therefore make this proposal... We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. We are willing to carry this out and to make this pledge in the United Nations. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States, for its part, considering the uneasiness and anxiety of the Soviet state, will remove its analogous means from Turkey. Khrushchev's second letter also reiterated the need for the United States to announce that it would not invade Cuba. Some in the media, like Walter Lippmann, had floated the idea of the United States removing its missiles in Turkey in exchange for the Soviets removing their missiles in Cuba. But the majority of the ExCOM rejected this. The Turkish government wanted to keep the missiles. The XCOM worried that removing those missiles would show their allies that they would be willing to negotiate their security away. Also, from the American perspective, the missiles in Turkey were far more legitimate because they were sent there in a transparent manner for all of the world to know, while the Soviets had placed missiles in Cuba covertly. To the hawks, the idea of trading these missiles was a false equivalent. But Kennedy felt that the exchange of missiles in Turkey for missiles in Cuba could be a way out. He brought up the option several times during meetings. He also felt that if things escalated and the Soviets made a move on Berlin, which would threaten Western Europe, critics would later say that he could have stopped the crisis in the first place had he traded the Jupiter missiles earlier. The entire crisis got even more dangerous when a U-2 spy plane sent by the United States over Cuban airspace was shot down. The pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson, was killed. Around the same time, another U-2 flight, which was on a routine mission doing air samples to determine whether the Soviets were conducting nuclear tests, accidentally entered Soviet airspace in Siberia. It was intercepted by Soviet planes. Thankfully, the pilot was able to steer his plane safely back to the United States. Khrushchev later underscored the risks involved when he said that the U-2 plane could have easily been mistaken for a nuclear bomber. That same day, Khrushchev received a letter from Castro, The Cuban leader told Khrushchev that he considered, quote, an attack to be almost imminent within the next 24 to 72 hours. There are two possible variants. The first and most probable one is an air attack against certain objectives with the limited aim of destroying them. The second, and though less probable, still possible, is a full invasion. This would require a large force and is the most repugnant form of aggression which might restrain them. He then wrote, quote, I believe the imperialists' aggressiveness is extremely dangerous, and if they actually carry out the brutal act of invading Cuba in violation of international law and morality, that would be the moment to eliminate such danger forever through an act of clear, legitimate defense, however harsh and terrible the solution would be. To some historians, This was Castro's way of urging Khrushchev to use nuclear force in the event of an American invasion of Cuba. The XCOM had a predicament, what to do about Khrushchev's second letter. The hawks in the XCOM continued to pressure Kennedy to act, at least to strike Cuba's surface-to-air missile sites. The worst option of all, they felt, was inaction. They believed that this would signal American weakness but Kennedy held firm on his beliefs. He was still gambling that Khrushchev wanted a way out. JFK wanted to give him time and space. It was risky, but he felt it was worth the chance to end the crisis. Kennedy focused in on the Turkish missiles. He insisted to his advisors that removing the Turkish missiles could be part of a deal. The Hawks considered this tantamount to surrender. But in the XCOM, the tide was turning against the Hawks. Khrushchev's offer in his first letter had the makings of a deal. Perhaps if they ignored the second letter and pretended it was never written, they could engage the Soviet leader on the first one. That could be a way out. In the following years, Bobby Kennedy was said to have proposed the idea, to ignore the second letter and take up Khrushchev's offer in the first letter. The movie Thirteen Days, a docudrama about the crisis, certainly portrays it that way. But the truth is that the idea was floated by several members of the XCOM. Regardless of whose idea it was, Kennedy decided to take it. He wrote a letter to Khrushchev indicating his willingness to end the quarantine and a guarantee not to invade Cuba in exchange for the Soviets dismantling the missiles from Cuba under UN supervision and to cease sending any new missiles. The letter also alluded to an arrangement regarding, quote, other armaments which may have been a reference to the Turkish missiles. Kennedy sent the letter to Khrushchev, but he also wanted to keep working a back channel. He had his most trusted advisor, Bobby Kennedy, meet secretly with Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin. The details of that meeting have been debated for decades. According to Dobrynin, the Americans were in desperate straits. He wrote to Khrushchev, quote, Robert Kennedy looks exhausted one could see from his eyes that he had not slept for days. He himself said that he had not been home for six days or nights. Dobrinin then quoted Robert Kennedy as saying the following, The president is in a grave situation and does not know how to get out of it. We are under very severe stress. In fact, we are under pressure from our military to use force against Cuba. Probably at this very moment, the president is sitting down to write a message to Chairman Khrushchev. We want to ask you, Mr. Dobrynin, to pass President Kennedy's message to Chairman Khrushchev through unofficial channels. President Kennedy implores Chairman Khrushchev to accept his offer and to take into consideration the peculiarities of the American system. Even though the president himself is very much against starting a war over Cuba, an irreversible chain of events could occur against his will. That is why the president is appealing directly to Chairman Khrushchev for his help in liquidating this conflict. If the situation continues much longer, the president is not sure that the military will not overthrow him and seize power. The American army could get out of control. Bobby Kennedy's account of the meeting makes no mention of a fear of a coup. He later wrote, quote, The Soviet Union had secretly established missile bases in Cuba, while at the same time proclaiming privately and publicly that this would never be done. We had to have a commitment by tomorrow that those bases would be removed. I was not giving them an ultimatum, but a statement of fact. He should understand that if they did not remove those bases, we would remove them. President Kennedy had great respect for the ambassador's country and the courage of its people. Perhaps his country might feel it necessary to take retaliatory action. But before that was over, there would be not only dead Americans, but dead Russians as well. Bobby added, quote, He raised the question of our removing the missiles from Turkey. I said that there could be no quid pro quo or any arrangement made under this kind of threat or pressure, and that in the last analysis, this was a decision that would have to be made by NATO. However, I said... President Kennedy had been anxious to remove those missiles from Italy and Turkey for a long period of time. He had ordered their removal some time ago, and it was our judgment within a short time after this crisis was over, those missiles would be gone. The issue of the Jupiter missiles forms the crux of a major debate. Many scholars believe that Bobby Kennedy, acting as an intermediary for his brother, signaled to the Soviets that they would remove the Jupiters in Turkey, but only in secret, and in a few months, so as to not appear part of a deal to end the crisis. Rusk and McBundy insisted that Bobby made no such deal, but close Kennedy aide Ted Sorensen later admitted that a promise to remove the Turkish missiles was made verbally, and it was made without the knowledge of several members of the XCOM or the NATO Allies. There was also the possibility that the missiles were going to be removed anyways, something that had been discussed before the crisis. They were already considered obsolete and vulnerable to Soviet attack. That may have served as a cover for their removal. According to Bobby Kennedy, he made clear to Dobrynin that they wanted an answer from the Soviets no later than the following day. Things were at a breaking point. Kennedy was coming under more and more pressure to take military action the ball was now in the Soviet's court. For his part, Castro kept up the pressure on Khrushchev. He continued to advise the Soviet leader to be ready to attack the Americans with military force, perhaps with nuclear weapons. But Khrushchev did not want to go to the brink. On October 28, 1962, Radio Moscow announced the following statement, The Soviet government has issued a new order on the dismantling of the weapons which you describe as offensive and their crating and return to the Soviet Union. The Soviets had agreed to the deal. Kennedy had gambled and it paid off. Khrushchev wanted a way out and he accepted what Kennedy was offering. As the media reported on the agreement, nothing was said of the Jupiter missiles. Indeed, those would be removed quietly in April of 1963 seemingly unconnected to the crisis. Kennedy and his team felt triumphant. They had succeeded in their goal of getting the Soviet Union to remove the missiles from Cuba. But Kennedy believed that this resolution depended on him giving the Soviets some political cover to back down. So he instructed his administration to not gloat over the result. Given the stakes, they probably felt more relieved than victorious. Not everyone was convinced that the resolution was a win for the Americans. Upon hearing news of Khrushchev's decision, General Curtis LeMay, one of the major hawks, said, quote, We lost. We ought to just go in there today and knock him off. Dean Acheson said, quote, We were too eager to liquidate this thing. So long as we had the thumbscrew on Khrushchev, we should have given it another turn every day. For the hawks, the Soviets won by getting the U.S. to promise not to invade communist Cuba and to remove the missiles from Turkey. From Kennedy's perspective, victory was less about those details and more about ending the crisis and avoiding nuclear war. The weeks after the crisis, while less intense than the 13-day standoff, were more complicated than is remembered. Castro was angered by what he saw as a Soviet capitulation he resisted having the United Nations supervise the withdrawal. Kennedy continued the quarantine, but he basically accepted Cuba's refusal to allow full inspections so long as the United States could continue its aerial surveillance. He also insisted that the nuclear missiles be removed. Khrushchev agreed to those terms. By November 20, 1962, the quarantine was officially over. But since Castro had resisted any inspections... Kennedy did not confirm his pledge to not invade Cuba, but to the world's relief, the standoff was over. There remains much debate about Kennedy's actions, whether or not he had quote-unquote won this confrontation with the Soviets. Regardless of all of that, perception is what mattered, especially during the Cold War, and the perception was that he had stood firm against the Soviets and removed the menace of nuclear weapons from American shores. That year, JFK's approval rating had risen from 62% in mid-October to 75% by November. Still, as Kennedy neared the end of his first two years in office, he found himself humbled by the challenges posed by the presidency. When asked to reflect on his experience in the White House thus far, he said the following. I would
2: say that the problems are more uh, difficult than i imagined imagine them to be. The responsibilities placed in the United States are greater than I imagined them to be, and there are greater limitations upon our ability to bring about a favorable result than I had imagined them to be. And I think that's probably true of anyone who becomes president, because there is such a difference between those who advise or speak or legislate and, be, and between the man who must uh, make select from the various alternatives proposed and say that this shall be the policy of the United States, well, it's much easier to make the speeches than it is to finally make the judgments.
0: Kennedy knew that it was lonely at the top. Perhaps he finally appreciated Eisenhower's advice that only the difficult decisions would make it to the president's desk. The crisis had sobered both Kennedy and Khrushchev. It's not hard to see why. Walking to the brink of nuclear war would sober anyone. They began to look for ways to ease tensions between both sides and perhaps reduce the likelihood of another confrontation. Khrushchev now refrained from his usual saber-rattling over Berlin. The following year, they established a hotline, a direct connection between the White House and the Kremlin. In June of 1963, Kennedy gave a speech at the American University in Washington, D.C., where he presented a vision for a world where the United States and the Soviet Union could live peacefully.
2: What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living The kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied air forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours.
0: It was a vision for what would later be known as detente, a relaxation of tensions with the Soviet Union. In August of 1963, Kennedy achieved what he hoped would be a first step in that direction. He and Khrushchev signed a treaty to ban nuclear tests in the atmosphere, in space, and underwater. Historians consider it a modest success that paved the way for future arms agreements under his successors. With all of that said, it might be too much of a stretch to say that Kennedy had shed his Cold Warrior stance completely. On the last day of his life, he maintained that the United States and the Soviets were still in a global competition, and that the United States had to lead.
2: But this is a very dangerous and uncertain world. As I said earlier, on three occasions in the last three years, the United States has had a direct confrontation. No one can say uh, when it will come again. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade, and perhaps not in this century. But we should realize what a burden and responsibility the people of the United States have borne for so many years. Here, a country which lived in isolation, divided and protected by the Atlantic and the Pacific, uninterested in the struggles of the world around it. Here in the short space of 18 years after the Second World War, we put ourselves by our own will and by necessity into defensive alliances with countries all around the globe. Without the United States, South Vietnam would would collapse overnight. Without the United States, the CETO Alliance would collapse overnight. Without the United States, the CETO Alliance would collapse overnight. Without the United States, there would be no NATO, and gradually Europe would drift into neutralism and indifference. Without the effort of the United States and the Alliance for Progress, the communist advance onto the mainland of South America would long ago have taken place. I don't think that uh, we are fatigued or tired. We would like to live uh, as we once lived, but history will not permit it. The communist balance of power is still uh, strong. The balance of power is still on the side of freedom. We are still the keystone and the arch of freedom. And I think we will continue to do as we have done in our past, our duty. And uh, the people of Texas will be in the lead. So I'm glad to come.
0: For historians, many questions remained in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. One of them is just how close the world did come to nuclear war. There were a number of incidents, like the U-2 plane that accidentally entered Soviet airspace, that could have escalated into nuclear war. Another question is what Kennedy would have done had Khrushchev rejected his offer in his November 27th letter. Kennedy seemed to indicate that he would have had to use force if the deal had failed. But there are some indications that Kennedy would have tried to find some other way out. He later told his aide, Arthur Schlesinger, quote, An invasion would have been a mistake, a wrong use of military power. McNamara, Rusk, and Sorensen have, at different times, said that Kennedy would not have invaded. Some historians argue that Kennedy's failure at the Bay of Pigs invasion emboldened Khrushchev to risk sending the missiles to Cuba. It's very possible that this was the case. I also think it's worth noting that Kennedy had handled the crisis with great prudence. And in the end he came away with a stronger position than Khrushchev. He had forced the Soviet leader, the same man who had bullied him in Vienna the previous year, into a humiliating retreat, one that left his ally Castro disappointed. Kennedy had made the Third World a focus of his presidency and seemed to have won a victory in Cuba. But a crisis was looming in another Third World country, which would prove to be Kennedy's toughest decision yet. That crisis is the focus of our next episode of This American President. To learn more about John F. Kennedy, check out The Presidency of John F. Kennedy by James Giglio. President Kennedy, Profile of Power by Richard Reeves, and Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. Special thanks to Jennifer Mazella for her contributions in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts, Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President.
1: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLA, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen
0: Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.